A little girl vanishes into thin air. I looked under cars. I looked in bushes. The investigation still haunts the community. It's a nightmare. At first, you don't believe it's actually happening. Well, he then tells us that he has seen some of these uh, missing child posters uh, where he uh, lives. I'm Bryn Caswell, reporter and weekend news anchor at Dayton 24-7 Now. This honorable court is again in session. You may be seated. State may call their next witness. I'm Nathan Edwards, morning news anchor, and this is Missing Erica Baker, a podcast from Dayton 24-7 Now. In this episode, the Erica Baker case goes to trial. It's October 2005. It's almost been a year since Christian Gabriel confessed to striking Erica Baker with his van on a rainy day near the park. It's been five years since Christian's then girlfriend and possible accomplice, Jan Franks, died of a drug overdose. You solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give to the court and the jury in this case will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you, God. Yes, we do. Please be seated. Time was running out for justice. Christian Gabriel was indicted just three days before the six-year statute of limitations for his charges. You may inquire. Thank you. It's been six long years since Erica's grandmother squeezed and hugged her nine-year-old granddaughter. Nice, loud, clear voice. Can you tell us your name? My name is Pam Schmidt. Now, she's being sworn in as a witness in an Ohio courtroom. Pam is speaking to a jury that sits behind a wood-paneled box. Journalists watch the trial, too, so they can share the details with a community eager for answers and updates. On one side of the courtroom sits Christian Gabriel and his legal counsel. On the other side, we see Prosecutor Leon Daydone representing the state. You'll recognize his voice. We talked to him for our last episode. Here, he asks Pam Schmidt to tell the jury what happened that last day with Erica. Um, she came downstairs. I mean, Erica's very bubbly, and when she got home, she wanted to tell us everything that happened the weekend. So she came downstairs with her brother. Um, they were talking to Misty and I. Now, when you were talking to Erica, did you get to look at her? Sure. Did she look fine? Beautiful. The trial lasted about a week. Christian Gabriel did not testify. According to prosecutors, his counsel did put on a few witnesses. They testified that they were at the recreation center, but they did not see a van that day. Ma'am, I'm going to show you what has been marked as state's exhibit 14 for identification (coughs) purposes. And what do you recognize that as being? Chris's van. Prosecutors called Sabrina Lyons as a witness. Christian's earlier stories include her as a witness to the car accident that struck Erica. In 1999, Sabrina was married to Clifford Butts. She says the couple stayed with Christian and Jan above the Duck Inn, a dive bar in Dayton. Leon de Doan starts his line of questioning. Did you ever see Jan Franks drive the defendant's van? No. Did you ever see the defendant drive his van? Oh, yeah. Have you, and you've been inside the van? Yes. How many times have you been inside the defense van? I don't know. No, I don't know. All right. We were running with them for a couple weeks, so. And we didn't have a car, so you figured that out. Were you ever in, in the defendant's van when a little girl was taken to Huffman Dam? No. 
Nothing further. Mr. Mullock, cross-examination. Christian's lawyer then starts the cross-examination. It goes by quickly. She doesn't have much to add. You had absolutely nothing to do at all with the disappearance of Erica Baker? No. And that's true, right? Yes. And so if someone said you did, then that would be false. That's right. Thank you. I have nothing further. You're excused. Thank you. Eighteen witnesses share their testimony in total. This gave us new insight into the investigation. Do you see this Mr. Gabriel in the courtroom that met you at the door that day? Yes, sir, I do. Detective Richard Renner. And can you point him out for us, please? <clears throat> yes, he's at that table there in a white long sleeve shirt. Indicating the defendant, Christian Gabriel, for the record, Your Honor. Detective Renner is the first detective to contact and talk to Christian Gabriel after police received information from Clifford Butts. He tells the court he and his partner knocked on Christian's door. Christian led them into his bedroom where they could talk. Detective Renner's partner read him his Miranda rights. Tell the jury what happened after he acknowledged his rights. Well, he then tells us that he has seen some of these uh, missing child posters where he uh, lives. So we asked him back on February 7th of 1999, where were you living at? And he told us in Dayton on Wyoming Street, just above the Duck Inn. Detective Renner continued to testify that Christian Gabriel told him he owned a 1975 van on February 7, 1999. Another important detail that verified Clifford Butts' information. He continues to recall what Christian told him that day. We said, okay, taking you back now to uh, February 7th of uh, 1999. Were you ever in Kettering? And he says, no, never have been there. Then a few seconds later, changes it. Well, I may have been there, but I don't remember where. And then just a few seconds later, changes it again. I was in Kettering at the Myers taking CDs and clothes. We asked him, were you there by yourself? And he said, no, two people there too. Do you know what their names are? Yes, a Mr. Butts and a Jan Franks. Detective Renner says this was the first time Christian Gabriel brings up these names, Clifford Butts and Jan Franks. Then we ask him what happens in the uh, Myers. We start stealing and we run out there then and Mr. Gabriel tells us that he and Jan Franks get into his van and drive back to the Duck Inn. And when they get back there, Mr. Butts is there, already there. Remember, this is the first time police talked to Christian. Detective Renner says Christian told them that Clifford Butts was already home at their apartment above the dive bar after Christian and Jan arrived back from the grocery store, Meyer. What was the tone of the conversation? Casual. I then mentioned to him or said, on your way to the Myers that day, on February 7th, a rainy day, on your way to the Myers or back to the Duck Inn, 
did you possibly strike something or somebody? And he looked down like this, didn't answer me. In the courtroom, Detective Renner looks to the floor. I waited maybe about 30 seconds, maybe a minute, and still no reply. I ask him again, Mr. Gabriel, is it possible on your way to Myers or from Myers, did you hit somebody? And he's still looking down. Then he looks up, and his eyes now are uh, welling up, kind of like. Then he says, something could have happened, but I just don't remember. After he made that comment, what happened next? I then said, uh, Mr. Gabriel, would you be uh, willing to come back to the station? And we can talk about this some more. And he said, okay. After the last testimony and closing arguments, the jury deliberates. More than five years after the misty winter day that came to haunt the community, Christian Gabriel is convicted of tampering with evidence and gross abuse of a corpse. He is sentenced to six years in prison. We asked Prosecutor Leon De Doan how he remembers the sentencing. He got very upset when he got convicted. Uh, he went off in the courtroom. When he got sentenced, Judge Hall might have some harsh words for him. And uh, he, his mother was in the courtroom. His mother tried to calm him down. But um, he was all like, you know, I'm getting railroaded through all this kind of uh, attitude. But at the end, he, you know, yelled and his demeanor was not not good in the courtroom. He got the maximum sentence, but many in the community felt this punishment wasn't enough. A little girl was ripped from her family. Was this justice? The prosecutors are limited to the evidence the cold, hard facts of the case. The prosecutors broke it down for us, starting with... Tampering with evidence, what he was facing was on or about February 7th, 1999, in Montgomery County, Ohio, the defendant Gabriel, knowing that an investigation is or was in progress or is or was about to be or likely to be instituted, did alter, destroy, conceal, remove a thing which would have been her, her body, with purpose to impair its value or availability has evidence in the investigation. And then to continue on, the second count was gross abuse of a corpse. The defendant, Gabriel, without being authorized by law, did recklessly treat a human corpse in a way that would outrage reasonable community sensibilities. Let's be clear. He was not charged and convicted for murder or vehicular manslaughter. How can someone be convicted of gross abuse of a corpse without having the corpse available as evidence? There's a bigger question at play here too. How can justice be delivered when we're missing vital evidence? Erica Baker's body. It does make it very difficult. That's the charge. But I guess in a sense, by you taking the body, in that sense, taking the body was, was the offense. But it is hard to prove cases when we don't have a body. It's, it makes it hard. I mean, you have to ask the family, like, did you give Gabriel permission to, like, bury your child? I mean, 
it, you know, there's some hard things, but the family had to take the stand and, and testify. Here's how that played out in court when Erica's grandmother, Pam, was giving her testimony. Would this individual, the defendant, have your permission or consent to have Erica on February 7th, 1999? No, he would not. We have uh, your consent or permission to have Erica, whether she was living or deceased on February 7th, 1999? No, he would not. And ma'am, would you want Erica returned to you, whether she was alive or dead? Most definitely. And if she was dead, would you want her return to have a decent burial? Yes, I would. Nothing further. How did prosecutors land on these specific charges? We asked Leon Daydone to explain the decision. Do you think he's a criminal mastermind or lucky? He is not a criminal mastermind. He is not. You mentioned that his story basically had developed a little bit by little bit. Yes. So that would be over the span of a couple years. I mean, were there any concerns that he was crafting a narrative for specific charges? Because when we were talking to Bob Green about his confession, he had mentioned gross abuse of a corpse and tampering with evidence. And vehicular homicide. Yeah, how do you guys... Remember how Detective Green says Christian asked about specific charges before he confessed? He started to walk out and he stopped and he turned around and... He said to me, what would I get for tampering with evidence, gross abuse of a corpse, and vehicular homicide? I said, Chris, I have no idea. I have no idea. We thought this was strange, so we asked prosecutors about this. Were there any concerns that he had come up with an idea in his mind of what would be the lesser charges I can, you know, admit to Mm -hmm. so I don't have to go to prison as long? Well, you're asking me to go in his head (laughs) and we were able to prosecute him to what he, the statements, like those were the highest charges we could get. I think it's fair to say the grand jury considered homicide. The grand jury considered everything. The grand jury heard from 10 witnesses over a five-day period, and homicide charges were there for their consideration. According to federal rule of criminal procedure, People present during grand jury proceedings, except witnesses, are prohibited from disclosing distinct details about what transpired in the courtroom. For this reason, Daydone shares only what is lawful. But the six-year stats limitations was going to run three days after the indictment for the tampering charge and gross abuse of a corpse. So we had to, at that point indict him or in three days we could not indict him for the two the tampering charge or gross abuse there was no statute limitations uh on the homicide do you think you'll get to charge him with homicide down the road or murder or here's becky our news director i don't know what other evidence we would i mean i could guess if somebody finds her body and there's a bullet hole in her skull or something with the homicide charges was there just not enough to go after him in that instance, or the worries about like if he appealed and he'd win that, then you guys wouldn't be able to charge him down the road if you actually did find a body. Well, different homicide charges require different elements. You just can't say, well, put a homicide charge on him because you have to look at what he's telling you and there's nothing in there at the, what he said, you know, involved an at- her stepping in front of the vehicle. You really needed a body. Yeah. 
or at least other information yes. and evidence. Matt Heck, prosecuting attorney. We took it to the grand jury and presented all the information to the grand jury and there just wasn't sufficient evidence. Even though they considered it, there wasn't sufficient evidence to cause them to indict on a homicide charge but there wasn't at that time. If this happened the way he said it happened and she darted in front of his car and she, he accidentally hit her, he probably would have been charged with homicide anyway. If it really happened this yeah, way. Yeah, and I don't know, he had right? mentioned about, so yeah. Like, yeah. If you take it, right. if you take just his statement, right. you know, at face value, right. and someone darts in front of you yeah. and you accidentally, mm -hmm. you know, and that's again, goes to your point of, yeah. why don't you just stop? Right. Call an ambulance, yeah. call the police. Again, he's not thinking yeah. like us. It is kind of interesting that if you would stay there, but usually there's a reason. It could be they have a lot of drugs, mm -hmm. alcohol in their system, but a lot of times if they would have stayed, it wouldn't have been any, any offense. Mm -hmm. In 2007, two years after the conviction, Christian's attorney filed an appeal. He claimed he was denied a fair trial because his own statements provided the only evidence against him. What was his grounds for appeal? Uh, his grounds for appeal were for a couple of things, if I remember. The main thing were all the statements about not allowing them to come into evidence. Another one was on weight of the evidence, like did the state put on enough evidence based on his statements and other things to convict him, and obviously the Court of Appeals agreed. His appeal didn't go anywhere. So Christian sits in prison for six years. Then one day after Erica's birthday in June 2011, Christian became a free man. It was a shock to everyone, but it made Gabriel happy. Check out the smirk of satisfaction on his face after he hears the good news. After a short break, the twist that shocked nearly everyone. Then released from jail, another twist. He climbs into Pam's car giving the man connected to her granddaughter's death a ride. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash ad-free-true-crime. That's Amazon.com slash ad-free-true-crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The approval from Erica Baker's family shocked everyone, but even more unusual, Gabriel got into Pam Schmidt's car, Erica's grandma giving the man connected to the little girl's death a ride. Yesterday would have been Erica's 22nd birthday. Misty Baker says it would have been the best birthday present ever if Gabriel would have revealed the location of her body. In one archival video of the event, Gabriel can be seen speed walking out of the Mercer County Jail, wearing a black hat, a white t-shirt, gray sweats, and black sneakers. 
he rushes towards the passenger door of a gray compact SUV. Onlookers and news outlets familiar with the car react in shock and confusion, knowing that the driver is the grandmother of the little girl he confessed to striking with his van, Pam Schmidt. Bryn, Becky, and I are back with Pam Schmidt and Misty Baker, Erica's grandmother and mom. We're sitting at Pam's living room, trying to understand why she let Christian Gabriel hop into her car. He was coming off fresh from serving a six-year sentence connected to her granddaughter's disappearance. Well, to me, it was an opportunity. And I'm sure maybe even you in a situation have said, um, you know, if it was me, I would blah, blah, blah. Well, if it was me, I'd try to talk to him. And so that's what I tried to do. She wanted answers. Where was her granddaughter's body? Her daughter, Misty, Erica's mom, had no idea Pam planned to pick him up. I just want to know what you thought when you found out that your mom did that. <laughs> what, was, what went through? I thought she lost her mind. <laughs> I'm proud of Pam says she was talking with Christian's mom before his release. She says his mom was worried about the reporters and journalists who would be watching Christian get released. And she would prefer that people there did not know um, that he was her son and what he, what he was accused of. So she, I knew that. And so I said to her, if he will let me, why don't I pick him up and I'll bring him to you. And that way you don't have to sit here. So she agreed with it and he agreed to talk to me. Why do you think he agreed to get into yeah. the car with you? I have no idea. Well, for one thing, he didn't have a ride anymore. <laughs> Pam was not an undercover cop or anything like that. She says she did not wear a wire or even take talking points from police. She talked with Detective Bob Green about her plan. They talked through how the conversation with Christian would go in the car. But other than that, it's all Pam. At court, um, I asked the judge to please release him um, because I wanted to talk to him on another matter. And some people took exception to that, like I was taking up for him, and that was not it at all. I just wanted to talk to him. So he knew that I was gonna to try to talk to him at that point. So what did you say to him, and what was the conversation like? Okay, when I went in, I believe it was a sheriff, would not leave us alone. Well, as you can imagine, he's not gonna tell me anything in front of anybody. And so I just talked to him, and just ask him some perfunctory things, not really anything. And then when we were ready to leave, that sheriff would not let us leave out any entrance except the front, and there were reporters out there. So we went out the front, I drove up the car, he got in my car and we drove off. Now, now I've got him in the car, it's just me and him. And so I start to ask him questions. And um, I ask him where Erica was, um, I explained to him, in very clear terms, that I had a shovel in the back of the car, and if he would tell me where she was, we could go there. My presence alone at the scene would contaminate evidence. So there was not anything that could be done. And um, I did everything I could to try to talk him into giving me some information. And he, would, he just said, I don't remember. And I said, I know you remember, I know that somewhere in there, you know, there's, I tried to appeal to his, the part of him that, that is good, um, and, and begged him, 
point blank, I practically begged him to tell me something. And I didn't get any information from him. Yeah, was he emotional at all? Yeah. Angry, annoyed that you were asking him? He all was these nervous. Questions? He was nervous. Nervous. Mm -hmm. Do you think he has any remorse for what happened? His remorse is based on the future he would face if he was convicted of a crime. I don't believe that he has a conscience. So, were his answers when you're in the car, were they, were they short? Did it seem like he was even trying to answer your questions at that moment? Felt like to me he was lying and trying to lie and trying to tell me enough that I would be quiet so I wouldn't keep asking him things. Were you ever nervous at any point in this car ride that he might harm you? No. The worst that that man had done to me, he had already done. And I had no fear of him whatsoever. Quite frankly, in looking back, I don't know why I didn't take that shovel and just hit him in the head. <laughs> I still don't know. But that was not my motivation. No, I wasn't afraid of him. He was more fearful of me. 15 to 20 minutes later, they arrived at a restaurant nearby where his mother was waiting. How did you guys end the conversation? His mother came over mm -hmm. because she was there and we all got out. We were all standing there talking. And I continued to ask questions. He told me at that point, um, if I ever remember anything, I will let you know, which was ridiculous. He knows. He knows exactly where she is. It's not in his best interest to tell. Not, absolutely not. The only way he would ever tell is if he were up for some higher charges. Mm -hmm. And then if he could use that as a bargaining chip. But if that day didn't happen, no, he's not going to tell us. Have you tried to reach out to him since over the years? Well, I've sent some things. I sent posters, um, but the last address I had, it came back to me. So these posters with Erica's face on them? Sure. Anything to maybe guilt him into giving you an answer? I just want to remind him what she looks like, that she was real, that she was a little girl and she deserves to be put someplace that we, her family, can pay honor to her life and not thrown away like a piece of garbage because she is not. The bottom line, there's no real justice until Erica Baker's body is found. We're back with the prosecutors. The lead criminal prosecutor, Leon Daydone, has since retired. Prosecutor Matt Heck is the elected official overseeing the Montgomery County Prosecutor's Office. He has been in charge for the entire 23 years of this case. What would it take to see this case in a courtroom again? Well, police would have to come up with additional evidence, and that evidence would have to be amount to a crime, and they would have to get enough evidence to prove that crime in a courtroom. So pretty much a body at this point is, and, is the best not bet. Just the body, not just the body, but maybe something that would scream out to the world that it didn't happen that way. Like I said earlier, a bullet found in the, the body or something like that, but I don't know. But we're always here if the Kettering has more evidence. We're absolutely invested in this case, as uh, Mr. Heck said, since day one. And uh, whatever comes up, I live this case and whatever I can to bring justice 
To Erica, I will. Are you coming out of retirement if they find a body? I'm going to answer that for you. Yes, he is. <laughs> yes, he will be. The lead detective, Bob Green, has also retired. You landed a conviction, maybe not the conviction that you wanted for Christian Gabriel. He spent very little time behind bars for the disappearance of Erica Baker. Are you happy where this case is right now? No. She's not home. What's it going to take to bring her home? Drive, determination, and not let it go cold. In next week's episode, the last of this season, we talk with a new detective who is determined to not let this case run cold. Uh, and as long as she still hasn't been found and, and, and as, as I stand here and breathing, uh, I will dedicate everything that I have to, to the cause. Because it's a little kid. And because I just want to bring her home. That's it. Plus, the searches with new technologies that could lead to new evidence. There were some archaeologically significant finds made in Mongolia using the same camera that even went back to the Ottoman Empire. And how her family and friends continue to honor her memory and grapple with her loss. I am hopeful. I am hopeful that every time Vince Mason gets a tip, it's the one that leads us to Erica. I'm very hopeful. But it wasn't until I was just on a night drive one night and I called my husband and I was like, I think she's gone. That's all for this episode of Missing Erica Baker, a podcast from Dayton 24-7 Now. Find us in your podcast app next Tuesday. Follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you can never miss an episode. If you like the show, leave us a rating and review. It really helps new listeners find the show. Thanks to our production team from Sinclair Broadcast Group, Becky Golden, Michael Oyan, and Holden Robinson. And our production team at Pod People, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Jazzy Johnson, and Adam Remunda. This is still an active investigation. If you have any tips about the case, please contact Kettering Police at 937-296-2555. For more reporting from Dayton, head to Dayton247now.com. We've created a special section dedicated to this podcast. Until next time, I'm Nathan Edwards. And I'm Bryn Caswell. This has been Missing Erica Baker.